Hello and welcome to the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. This episode is with Adam Greenfield and, well, um, Adam has written some really interesting books. I've personally read the Radical Technologies book and he has got his finger on the pulse about the nature of technology today and has some very interesting thoughts about the technology of tomorrow. This is a long episode. I do recommend you take the time to have a listen because it's an incredible conversation. We thought in the end that this would be an episode best served long with a serving of deep thought. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast with myself, Henry Fumby Taylor. And today I am joined by Adam Greenfield. Say hi, Adam. How do you do, fellow kids? And Ian Gordon. Hello, once again. Yes, Ian is back. He is uh, not content with being a Highways England data bod or the Highways England data bod, whatever. He's back. Um, and Adam Greenfield is, uh, is many things. To many people, and one thing to himself. Um, but Adam has uh, written several books and has a, a rather interesting uh, way with prose, I would say, having now listened to one of his books. Um, oh, really? Which one? Uh, Radical Technologies uh, was the one that I listened to uh, at Ian's behest. Was yes. it read adequately? What do you mean? I went cover to cover. I mean... And, uh, you, you listened to it, right? So it was an audio yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went so uh, it, was, it was read by somebody. Oh, oh, how was it read? Right, okay. Um, I feel like he warmed up to it by the end. I didn't really feel that he knew the message at the start. And then by the end, it was a, a beautiful turn of phrase. Uh, in kind of uh, in the book, uh, projects kind of several outcomes for how technology will like, be managed in the world and, and what will be the kind of outcomes. And one of them was... Uh, uh, kind of something stack, big stack, future stack, Peter stack. The, the stacks plus. Stacks plus. That yeah. was it. Yeah. And um, uh, and then it'll be uh, it will be diverse across every known metric and uh, fabulously brilliant. I can really badly paraphrasing. Fabulously brilliant. Um, populated by people who know full well their jobs are bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Just it was. <laughs> it just absolutely made me laugh out loud because he delivered it so well and it was kind of by the, he'd obviously gotten into the cadence of your writing by the end of it and was really delivering yeah he was really delivering so i really that's awesome that. yeah that is very very gratifying i it's it's a weird thing to think of your your words being spoken like that but yeah so yeah i guess i've written a couple of books and one of them got the audiobook treatment that's crazy yeah i certainly enjoyed it and it was uh, ian who put me onto it actually because um, yeah I, I promised myself i wouldn't geek out too much but it's it's one of my favorite books ever it's just already good um yeah, so. thank you that's very kind of you to say and, you know particularly so as you know when you put something out there in the world you never know if it's going to land or if anybody at all is going to find it so that's it's very gratifying to hear thank you very much delighted <laughs> <laughs> i am <laughs> he's laughing like no he's not no, he's, <laughs> he's just saying that. Why are you saying that to me? 
Why would he say that to me? Can I say that, by the way? Am I, are we, are we? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Just, I, don't, just, I think uh, all of our, I don't think there are any kids listening to listen to our podcast. So I think okay. we're okay. So I, 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 I will make my boilerplate apology for causing offense and we'll move on from that. Well, we, I, I kind of hoped you would uh, offend somebody somewhere. I think, uh, you know, this is the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. And one of the things that, so we are about, you know, to kind of just explain it to you again. Uh, we are about uh, having virtual copies of a thing or a process or whatever, but probably a thing like, say, a city. And um, how do those two things mesh? And do they work? And can they manage each other? And, you know, what's the interaction? And what's the point? And is it for the betterment of society? And and are we pushing forwards as a species? Or is this a, a long con by several consultancies and you know, software organizations to to make money. And the radical technologies is really asking the big questions on that. Like your like I know your politics pretty well now. This is weird because I know you a lot better than you know me now, because I've listened to you talk for a long time, effectively, which is a very strange position to be in with someone. You know, usually you meet somebody and you know it's just, you know, you're both on this voyage of discovery, but I feel like I have a fairly strong handle on your politics. So but for the listeners, what would you describe your politics as, Adam? A mess. I mean, I, I somehow... I've got, <laughs> well, that's I've politics, got, right? Yeah, no, I've somehow gotten to the age of 52 without ever having developed a template. And, and here's what I mean by a template. You know, you know people from whatever political tendency, and the political tendency doesn't matter, uh, whether it's uh, class analysis, whether it's idpol, whether it is... Uh, nationalism, you know, that is the template that they bring to anything. You can bring them a new issue, you know, uh, out of nowhere. Mm. And they'll apply their template to it. And that's, that is the analytical frame and the interpretive frame that they bring to it. So, you know, uh, you can bring the idea of a digital twin to somebody who's immersed in class politics and they'll say, well, what are the class implications of this? And how does this affect me as a member of the working class? Or, you can bring it to somebody who is a patriot and a nationalist and can say, well, is it, is it good for the country? Is it good for the land? Is it good for uh, the, the national community? And I am unashamed to say I don't really have a template. I, I vaguely have a principle that the purpose of power is for the powerful to protect the weak. That's like my, my bedrock principle. Why does that feel like a radical statement? Well, it shouldn't. It, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And, you know, I think so much of uh, society is built on that. That is the purpose of governing is to uh, yeah. govern and to, you know, support and nurture and protect, isn't it? You'd think so. I mean, those are the claims that we make for ourselves. And that's those are the ones that are enshrined in all of our founding documents and in all the charters of all of our public institutions. And, you know, I, I tend to believe that we observe those ideas more in the breach than in honoring them. Mm. Um, but yeah, that is that is the fundamental through line of my politics is that, you know, the, the whole point of power is to create a space in which those who are vulnerable can recover their own power. Um, so, okay, I'm going to make the big pitch then. So, smart cities, digital twins, these opinions voiced may not be the actual opinions of Henry, are going to save the world. Smart cities will make it so that their everything is in immediate grasp and we have full knowledge over where the bins are at any time. 
and the trees are all beautifully watered and never dry out and the birds sing in the trees and life is good and there is no pollution because we're measuring the pollution and then we uh, then we then we do a thing about the pollution um we turn the traffic off that road because there's too much pollution I, do you see what i mean you know that's my general pitch you know information will solve the problem it's a slightly intentionally naive statement because i think we need we as in everyone every, mm. all of us listening to this podcast we need to have a debate about governance and about that control and about creating tools for a purpose I, i'm i'm answering my own question which is what i said <laughs> i would not do so smart cities will save the universe go yeah, well, I'm, I'm very glad you started to define we because the very first thing I would have said is who's we? You know, you said we mm. have perfect information about this. Who, who is we? You know, in, in what institution is the we embodied? And, you know, I, I, the promise I made to myself was that I wasn't going to be too much of an academic jerk, but I, I'm going to trot out an academic phrase here because it's useful. We's are generally built up on the basis of constitutive exclusions. Right. So, so okay. you, you cannot define a we without defining who is not we. So the very first thing that, that occurs to me when I hear a mission statement like that is like, well, who gets to be inside the dotted circle on the org chart or, or the visualization and, and who's not? Um, who gets to participate in the creation of data? Who gets to cre uh, participate in the analysis of data? Who gets to participate in enacting interventions based on that data and who is subject to those interventions. So that's that's a, a, a first set of challenges to that notion. Okay, I think that's um, interesting. Hang on, I got a second set of challenges. Oh, okay, all right. I, sh uh, I should be taking notes, right? Uh, fortunately, this is all being recorded, which you know, <laughs> will also give you the opportunity to check up on me and make sure that I'm not talking out my ass. Um, th those, are, those are kind of like the fundamental questions about equity, about um, access, and, and, and not merely the Habermasian formal access, which is already a big enough issue, but, but real meaningful access. Like it doesn't matter if something is formally open source, if I don't have the ability to um, understand what it is that's being offered to me or the practical wherewithal to intervene in the development of that system. That's the first set of challenges. Second set of challenges, it's one that is more pragmatic and probably more dangerous to the digital twin ambition and, and harder for those consultants and, and tech firms to, to fend off. The, the first set of challenges is one that it's, it's, it's always been easy for for the McKinsey's of the world to wave their hand and say, look, you know, you're just a utopian anarchist, you know, and, and, and you think that you speak for the concerns of, of some notional community, but we're not really sure who it is that you're, who, on, on whose behalf you're speaking. Um, you know, we're building systems with demonstrable ROI. We have um, a track record of having done so successfully, whether or not they do. Um, and, 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 you know, we're pragmatists and we're talking here about the, we're not talking about your, your airy abstractions uh, about justice and equity. We're talking about delivering stakeholder value. And I have a separate set of questions about that, which is that given 
any real world issue you care to name, is a digital twin the most cost-effective way of getting after it? Or does it wind up being uh, a sink for investments of capital and energy that might be better applied to the direct management of the issues at hand? I, I had on my website a couple of years ago a, a set of you know, four questions about the smart city. And they amounted to this. It was like, you know, what does the system actually do? Does it actually do what it claims to do? And are there more cost-effective ways? You know, I, I realize I just said three, and I think I said there were four questions. I can't remember. You did. Before. You did. Yeah. That's Somebody it, right? It. We got him, guys. He's a right, hypocrite. Exactly. He said, he painted me he... into the corner. <laughs> that was so easy. I didn't do anything. Oh, oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, so, so okay. okay. Yeah. What is the system supposed to do? Does it actually do what it says it will do? Is what, what it's supposed to do something that we have collectively agreed as a community is worth doing and comports with our values? And um, are there more cost-effective ways or, or resource-effective, resource-efficient ways to serve that goal? And I think you'll find it is certainly the case in the history of smart city development that, and we're talking going back 15 years now, there are embarrassingly few deployments of networked informatics in the urban context that satisfy these relatively humble conditions. You know, something like the streetlight system in Copenhagen, fine, absolutely, you know, fine. You got networked uh, uh, traffic signals and they are seen to make traffic flow more smoothly. And yeah, that's probably worth the investment that was made in them. Fine, okay, if you wanna call that the smart city, we'll agree that that is a deployment of smart city technologies that redounds to the public benefit in some way. But you know, anything more aggressive than that, it is astonishing like that, that you would expect that there would be case studies by now. You would expect that there would be robust, full-featured, full-throated, articulations of the value, the sheer concrete economic value of a deployment of networked informatics in the urban frame. I guess it's this is a function of how this um, how these worlds meet. We are talking about physical sensing and you know interacting devices with the world how, you know, at the a city, let's just say it is a city state or a city is buying this stuff. They are um, so there's physical things on the one side. There's software on the other that is is there to operate and maintain and and you know um, just operate, not maintain, operate that. Then there's all the physical stuff that needs maintaining, and then you need to decide how all this, uh, what it's for, like you say, who should be running it, where it should be, etc. Uh, and the, the listeners can't see me nodding, but I'm nodding. You good, know. good, good, good. Good to know. Yes, that's a good point. Yes, but let's verbalize those things. <laughs> so I, I, I just think so. I, I was re, I was reading against the smart city your what 2014 2015 pamphlet, and I think it's really interesting to read that in the context of digital twins now because it, it felt like you read wrote that pamphlet kind of at a time when the milk was just starting to turn sour on smart cities you know 
you were clearly out of the honeymoon period and, and someone had actually spent some money on something and wanted to get something in return. And I think the thing I've been wondering about is clearly there's going to be that period of disillusionment in digital twins, inevitably, you know, because during the day, Henry and I exist in the world of logical positive, logical positivism, bleh, logical positivism. Yep. Got it. Got I it. Use logical positivism. Is that like a little yogurt? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's got all the good bacteria. That's it. Logical it. positivism. It makes you feel. Okay. Not to be confused I'm, I'm with the logical suppositivism. Um, logical suppository. Anyway. Logical, su logical suppositoryism. <laughs> Laws and shaped suppository. <laughs> That's something so, entirely different. The, the, the thing That's I'm good. trying to get, the, the, the kind of theme that I sense from your writing at the, at the risk of oversimplifying is this kind of a, a Venn diagram of fecklessness on the one side and then sort of skeptical, you know, reinforcing. Uh, you know, inequality on the other side, like power protecting itself. And it, it feels like in the smart city pamphlet, in radical technologies, even to a certain extent in, in your recent um, at the end of the world plant a tree where you kind of just seem to be despairing at the outcome of all this nonsense that's been turned out for years. This kind of, I, I, I never know quite where you stand on whether the, the world of logical positivism is feckless or skeptical or some sort of sort of converse combination of the two that doesn't quite result in what people think it's going to result in. That was an extremely meandering question. No, it was, it was a beautiful question. Yeah. Uh, and, and if I can, uh, I'll answer you honestly, it, it depends on whose logical positivism is being offered to you. If it is the logical positivism of somebody very young without much practical experience of the world, you know, however arbitrarily bright they might be. But if they say, look, I, you know, I've just read about this stuff and I really believe in it, we can do good. You can hear the capital letters and what they say. Then I'm inclined to be generous. Then it's just naivete and possibly the kind of stupidity that only very bright people are heir to. If it's somebody who's been around for a few years and has worked, you know, on multiple projects, you know, possibly in the Emirates or Singapore or somewhere like that, and they've come back and, and they've got their war stories and they're still peddling this line, then it is either Stockholm syndrome or they're actively trying to deceive their audience as well as themselves. And that's when I get angry. So what is logical positivism? It's the idea that in principle, the universe is knowable and, and its contents innumerable that you can identify and count them and that they are uh, you know to to within the limits of the physical universe that you can account for them um, and that they can be detected and characterized and that you can have perfect awareness of the universe through the instruments of your senses or the instruments that science has developed to extend the human sensorium. Is that fair? Yeah, and, and it's a language that we subconsciously live in. So every time someone tries to sell you a, an optimization algorithm or a neural network that performs 81% better than the, whatever the comparison point is, they are, they're selling you that philosophy. And to a certain extent, I'm wondering if the, the kind of 
the way that digital twins can somewhat avoid going down exactly the same route of smart cities and, and all of the other kind of snake oil that's been sold in the past is if we can accept that we are modeling a chaotic system, we can yeah. accept that every algorithm we produce is biased, but still, and maybe this is me falling into the naive camp, still trying to create some sort of open, collaborative, non-proprietary exchange of information that allows us to not control that chaotic world, but influence that chaotic world in a way that can result in positive benefit to society. That feels like the olive branch of potential in what we're trying to do. It is, and and, and here's the thing, like I am, I am so much more generous towards people who bring that sort of approach to me, right? I, I mean, I, I get it, I really do. And, and please believe me that if I didn't, if I hadn't started exploring this world with that uh, a hope very similar to that in my heart then then i wouldn't be where i am right now um and so please take what i'm about to say as um a remonstration with myself even more than with, with you or with anybody else advancing this position this position is still one of, of privilege it fails to account for the predictable uses of open data um, to basically make the lives of vulnerable people miserable. And vulnerable people understood in, understood to mean whoever becomes the target of um, the people who have the ability to intervene in the system. And so, you know, let's take a, a highway right with with uh, highway throughput data you know just just as, as an example of something which seems to be neutral right who wouldn't want to model the behavior of vehicles and traffic in as close to real time as possible and let's say that, that we, we do uh, what you're suggesting we say this is fundamentally a statistical model of the system and that everybody who is invited to play with this particular tool understands that it's not intended to be a one-to-one -one representation of reality. It's merely an approximation. Um, and, it, and we also stipulate that it has its designers, um, biases, emphases, blind spots built into it. And, and that we agree to acknowledge all of that's fine. So let's say that, that we in engineering the system are observing every possible best practice. If we make it open, I can promise you that there will still be people who find a way to use it to grief on people, to, to make somebody's life difficult because you know they've just gotten uh, they've just gotten off of a nasty divorce and they are motivated to make their ex-partner's life just crappier than it has to be, and, and they know what exit that their, their ex gets on the freeway at it, approximately what time every morning. You know, I don't need to go that far down that road, no pun intended. Mm. Um, human beings are wonderful and, and miserable. And our wonderfulness subsists in the extraordinary creativity that we bring to the challenges of um, using our tools and, and the information that our tools give us to make life just that little bit better. 
and our miserableness consists precisely in the fact that um, I can promise you that there are people who will have absolutely no compunction about using that framework. Um, you know, even, even if they regret it 30 seconds later, just to shit on somebody and to make their day miserable. And I, as a designer, I don't want that on my conscience. And as a member of the public, I think the question would come down to, is there an aggregate public benefit? Does the yield of aggregate public benefit outweigh the certainty that at least one individual's life is going to be derailed by the adoption of this technology or this framework? And that's not a question for me to answer. That's a question no. to answer collectively. No, I think there's a really, um there's some underlying points about harm and design. I think that's something that we overlook in the built environment a lot when we design something. If I, as I used to be a landscape architect, didn't do it for very long, but you know, if I put a tree, if I design a tree and it is at the end of a T-junction and somebody drives into that tree many years later, um, you know, some of those things could have been avoided you know that could that have been avoided is that my responsibility you know legally of course not you know um but that's roads themselves are extremely dangerous aren't they and we accept that mm. risk and that yeah. but is that, but a, is we've that never, a risk we've never consciously accepted that risk we've just roads just happened that's that's the thing i, I i'm not sure where i read it but Someone made the point that if you if you propose roads apropos of nothing today, yeah, no one in their right mind would sign off on roads. I, I will, I'm going to use your disclaimer, Henry. These are my personal opinions, not the opinion of Highways England. Um, <laughs> no, it's an excellent point. I mean, <laughs> you know, the precautionary principle is both something that I tried to live by but I also think it is a fundamentally timid way for society to organize itself. You know, there are clearly, let me, let me stipulate now that there are clearly um, places where you want to have something like a precautionary principle, where you want to have something like a Hippocratic oath. You say, first, do no harm. That's your first responsibility. Mm -hmm. Henry, to take your example, um, you know, is placing a tree at the top of a T intersection, you know, is that what a lawyer would call a reasonably foreseeable um, harm? And I, I think that um, you can certainly go overboard and saying, okay, well, to, to, to prevent there ever throughout the entire history of the future, anybody ever driving their car into that tree, we're not gonna put a tree there. Maybe that tree sheds benefit in other registers and dimensions and maybe you know, the, the sum of that benefit over the lifetime of the tree until somebody drives their car into it actually sheds more person years of life and happiness on people than the person who unfortunately loses their life because they've gotten drunk and they've driven their car into the tree. Uh, the, these are, I, I, I venture to say these are decisions that societies in general are not very good at because we don't know, we're, 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 A, we're immune B, we're bad at thinking about present risk versus deferred risk. And C, um, it's, it's like the trolley problem. You know, somebody has to take responsibility for these things and our systems of accountability um, 
are almost intentionally diffused so as to permit people to do their jobs on a regular basis without being burdened by the weight of these decisions. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a more like at a, at a macro level example of, I, I appreciate it's debatable whether we are actually going to survive as a species or not and whether, you know, I appreciate in some, in some capacity, Adam, you almost made an argument for a renunciation of even trying to persist, if I'm not misreading you. But if, um, if we, but yeah. it feels like our best chances of surviving are, you know, renewable technology and, and such like things that, that almost demand a highly networked society in order to function effectively, you know, disparate small scale generation and that sort of thing. So at that macro level, <laughs> Is it a price worth paying? Uh, and how do you how does one do that calculus? I guess. Can I put the the extra maths in of uh, of nuclear power into this debate because I feel like that is true. That is very closely tied into this. Is that that nuclear energy? I think represents a, a nexus of a lot of these decision making things. You know, the number of deaths per gigawatt or whatever is you know absolutely negligible but it's consistent but it's a lot higher than than uh, a fair bit higher than uh, wind and 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 water but actually water is quite dangerous because every now and again a dam i think water has actually killed more will water's actually killed i was totally wrong there water has killed significantly hydro has killed significantly more people than nuclear ever has the, the trouble with this, this line of reasoning though is that i think i've read that we actually have a greater chance of being killed by a gamma ray burster in within 10, year, 10 light years of us than anything else because it's an extremely low probability event, but the, the impact is so catastrophically high. And yeah. so it's this sort of bloodless calculus that can lead us into like uh, the effective altruism stuff or, or um, what was that called? You, you recall what I'm talking about, right? The, the effective charity stuff where people were like, the most important thing we can do with our money right now is to fund, uh, you know, the research into into AI development so that the the uh, more than human level intelligence that's sure to uh, result from AI research doesn't travel backwards through time to punish us for not supporting its development. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I know no, this no, no. Coherent. I'm like, I'm like, okay, where do I get my hat? <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is something that some very, very bright people um, use that sort of statistical calculus to arrive at. And, and, and it tortured them to near madness because they yeah. became certain that the most likely outcome, the statistically most likely outcome of all of our research was a godlike AI sitting vengefully in the future, you know, basically plucking our limbs from us like a small child plucking the, the limbs. But, from but this is going back to that um, logical positive positivism, posit yes. positivism, because we, there is no way to know. There is no way. We do not know what those systems look like, and we do not know what those systems have control right. over. So the way out of this, the way out of this entire yes, conundrum, please, please, is is democratic accountability. Is, yeah. is just you know, having conversations that include the people whose lives are affected by the deployments of these technology. They're not you know, consumers of it, they're, they're co-equals. They are co-creators of the system that includes both the technology and the people who, who it has impact on, right? So they are both ethically and I would argue practically um, a part of that larger system 
and uh, I think that we make uh, at least it may not be a better decision, but it will be a decision that everybody has signed off on. Mm. And then nobody can point fingers of blame, right? If you, if we are able, if we had an honest conversation about nuclear power and where we are right now, um, where we need to be, what are the actual chances that that delta is going to get filled in with wind and, and solar and, and, and hydropower? Um, what is the risk of, of nuclear power? Uh, when, you know, how soon might we expect fusion to be developed? And really have a very broad-based conversation about that and you know, show people Chernobyl, but also show them what happens downstream from a dam that's ruptured. You know, uh, have, uh, and, and don't try to have a rational conversation, have the emotional conversation. Delve into people's fears, figure out what the fears are. Try to put a weight on those fears. Have a real democratic, trusting adult conversation about these things and then get as close to consensus as you possibly can on what measures they, that you think the moment requires. And it may well be that you can't get to consensus on any of them. At and which so point, be it. And so be it. Then, then like we've tried. But if you, if you do actually arrive at, at something close to a consensus around something like, like fusion fission power, then, then you can cross that, that item off your checklist. You say, we do this as safely and cleanly as we know how to do. We acknowledge the risk. We understand that the, the risks involved are of a particularly horrifying nature, but we, we willingly and voluntarily shoulder that risk in the name of a future that, that we cannot imagine in the absence of taking that risk. Is that a kind of decision-making process that can really only realistically happen at a community level? Because I'm thinking I, of these, I think so, yeah. these kind of macro engagements, like the thinking of the FCC's recent engagement where like 90% of the responses were from bots and, and that sort of thing, you know, just demonstrate the folly of trying to make and the privilege of trying to make decisions at that scale. So how, how do you translate community level decision-making into something that actually can make reasonable decisions around a nuclear power plant of which there will only ever be one or two in, in any reasonable size country. Yeah, well, I think that the conversation and the decision does happen best at something pretty close to the Dunbar number of people, which, which suggests to me, you know, this is, this is what I spend a lot of time thinking about, what, what, what? It's a, the, the Dunbar number, so, so uh, plus minus 150 people. Um, oh. And, you know, this, uh, this number was specified by Robin Dunbar, who had a logic behind it that, that ultimately is immaterial to me. It doesn't matter why he thought that was the number. The number practically feels right. When you try to run meetings, you know, just like two hours, you know, at least in our culture, if you try to run a meeting that goes on longer than two hours, you probably failed. All meetings should, should uh, aim very seriously to end within two hours. Um, is that scientific? No. Is it culturally bound? I'm sure. You know, are there places on earth where you could have meetings that were bigger than 150 people effectively? Maybe so, but at least within my cultural experience, those are the, the kinds of dimensions of the grain. You know, you, yeah. you, you want yeah. to have... And Go ahead. 
and and there's there's exercises going on in the Republic of Ireland and France at the moment where they're trying to create groups of that size that then statistically represent the entire country and, and can therefore make decisions as a way of, I guess, doing community-based decision-making at a macro level. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's one way. Uh, you could also have what's called the assembly of assemblies where every local assembly has a recallable delegate. So somebody who is a, a accountable, recallable, essentially they're only there to function as an avatar they're not there as a representative. You know, it's an important distinction in, in you know, democratic theory. They're there simply to instantiate the will of the assembly that they're from. And, um, and so it isn't statistical at that point. It, it, it's still deliberative, um, but uh, it, it is designed to allow the scaling of, of an assembly-based uh, discourse. Because we're, we're, we're kind of uh, flicking around a few issues here one of them being tribalism and kind of influencing that kind of tribal behavior i know um uh like the city state of venice at the height of its power had one of the most arcane i did actually end up looking into it uh one of the most arcane methods of um electing its leadership um to retain balance i mean it was still white male privilege, you know, 100%. But they put so much work into really making it so that people couldn't grab power, and they couldn't hold power. And I think that's one of the the key issues is that, you know, whenever uh, we change power, whenever we change who controls a thing, or we think we're trying to decide that, you know, we, we're creating a new system. This is your system. This is how it's going to work. This person owns it. They do this and they do that. There is then nearly always this kind of period of, I call it plas plasticity, where there's mm -hmm. basically everything's up in the air and nothing's mm -hmm. decided yet. And we mm -hmm. don't really know how that system is going to be owned and run until that comes to an end. And then what, what, whatever ends up, whether it is, you know, Marx, or whether it is uh, democracy, or whether it is a, a Stalin or a Hitler or or or, um, or or an Obama, you know, whatever that is, and it, you know, a lot of those applica um, applications don't apply, but you get the spirit of where I'm going with this. What they end up becoming doesn't necessarily sit with the system that we had in mind. So, you know, like the class, like America's constitution does not operate the way it was intended to. That's a hundred percent. You can't, you know, that's, it was so set up to avoid bring, bring, a lot of the problems that, that are emergent in democratic yeah, institutions, right. yeah, you right. know? Yeah. Um, I think so it's bring, to, bring this back to bring this back to technology development. It's what I'm trying to do. It's, what, it's where I'm going yeah. with this. Well, is no, that well, I, let me let me see if I can circle this back because yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I take your point, and and I think that you know I can throw out notions for the ideal design of democratic spaces and processes, but I I would be open to the exact same challenge that I brought against Ian's notion before, which is that um, a uh, you know I'm I'm still a privileged person and I'm, I'm designing my blind spots into the system, right? Like we haven't even talked again about access to these discursive deliberative spaces and, and, and how to guarantee that. Um, the design of complex systems is hard. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds um, 
you know, the bathos of that statement is, is, you know, I can hear it ringing like a, like a drop A tuned guitar, right, in, in, my, in my mind. Um, it, I need to get that sound now. <laughs> yes, yeah, you need to like be able to like just play the drop A chord. Like, um, you know, we're we we always going to have to accept the suboptimality of whatever we design and take accountability for the specific ways in which we fall short. And I think that's all you can reasonably ask of people that, that you, you have accountability, you understand from the beginning that your design is going to be suboptimal. You accept that it's gonna be suboptimal in asymmetric ways. It's not gonna affect everybody equally. It's gonna hurt some people more than others. And that there are processes, you know, there are procedures for, for redress, modification and improvement. And you iterate, you're gonna to have to iterate, right? And this is, this is essentially version control. Mm. Um, and, and one thing that I wish democracies were a little bit better at, to use the example of the United States Constitution, you know, uh, is, is versioning and, and maybe even uh, kind of A-B testing with, with different, different constitutions, different distros of the constitution um, yeah. operating in different I love it. I've just got this image of, uh, so uh, in today's news, uh, Chile has forked the American constitution. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're going up on a different route. Yeah, we forked it uh, from a couple, uh, couple of iterations back and uh, yeah, we're very excited about where we're gonna take democracy now. I mean, yeah, this is a stupid, you know, this is just as logical, positivist and naive as anything else, but like, you I know, know, right? yeah, like, like split the country down the half, say this half has the second amendment, this half doesn't have the second amendment, see who likes it better, you know, like, yeah. which well, half we, does we don't even, we don't even have to talk about constitutions here because we're literally participating in a program called the National Digital Twin, where the, the fundamental idea is you will have some sort of algorithm or sets of algorithms that run the whole damn country. Yeah. like as much of the critical infrastructure as possible of the country so the idea of a b testing and half of the country getting fluoride poisoning or whatever and the other half not you know it's it, it's it's really hard to transcribe incrementalism and and community involvement into something that's premised on such levels of control and maybe it's irreconcilable and we just give up on the whole damn thing well which which suggests to me that's a terrible idea i mean when you say fluoride, <laughs> you know when, when you say fluoride poisoning are you explicitly referring to that thing that happened in, in florida a couple of years ago maybe subconsciously but not not deliberately but you know but what yeah, I'm talking like about these, that, yeah. these are the oh, you know I, I there are know. there are uh, hacks of it was a hack of a local wastewater plant wasn't that's it? precisely correct yeah that was only discovered because someone was watching the cursor um and one and wondering why the cursor was wandering around the screen without them having <laughs> yeah. done I mean, thank, thank God. Um, yeah, that doesn't feel like a failsafe to me. And I think this is something that's acknowledged in the program is that when you're dealing with things that, that if you buy into the logical positive and logical positivism and say yes, we we believe that the benefits of optimizing our infrastructure are such that these risks are worth taking you have to really have some level of fail safe that's, that's probably relatively unprecedented in, in technological terms beyond 
I guess to Henry's example, nuclear power plants and God knows those have failed in the yeah, past as well. Uh, civil aviation, commercial aviation, you know, they're, they're, these are, they, they play with sharp things that run hot at high velocities. And, you know, I would say aside from the occasional intentional uh, attempt to, to fuck with the system, have a pretty good safety record, you know, despite mm -hmm. what happened the other day over, over Texas. Um, I think it was Texas. You know, when, when the, the, the 777, yeah, yeah. You know, the engine. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I, I, think, I think it is possible to run dangerous systems to a relatively high, or to an acceptable level of risk, to a socially acceptable level of risk. I do think it is possible. Um, I think, that, again, there, there's got to be ethos of continuous improvement. Um, and there's got to be, um, and there have to be consequences for not doing your job well. One of the things that, that when, when we take the actual proposal of a national digital twin in a vacuum, you can think whatever you want about it. But when you plug that notion into the reality of a United Kingdom governed by the entities who are currently in charge of things, um, I, I tend to look much less favorably on that idea because I don't, I, I wouldn't trust them. I, I wouldn't trust them to take the recycling out, you know, um, it is, it is almost without an except, almost without a single exception, a government of, of placemen and mediocrities and, um, and counter competent individuals who, who counter competent. That's my word. Of yeah. But I, I don't. I don't think anyone. I, I think implicitly, everyone's assuming that these solutions. You know, let, let's let's go full blown tech utopia in here and assume that you have this this almost. <laughs> Shall we? Well, put at the disposal uh, of politicians. It's it's going to be a technocratic solution. That that feels like the assumption that's underlying this. Can I get that again? Like the, oh, sorry. I I went and I went. Oh jittery didn't i so well, you, you did and it was a perfect example of why we can't allow this to happen <laughs> yeah. I, I think people see the national digital twin were it to exist and be all powerful as something that would be administered like the bank of england like a notionally independent technocratic solution so that it couldn't be manipulated by whatever incompetent person is elected in by the you know the, the masses or even worse competent person yeah competent person with a negative agenda you yeah. know it. <laughs> but i think it's uh so i think there's a there's a top-down um notion inside a national digital twin and i think that's that's like inherent it's an in, it's inherently top-down we have a big national system and it is a network of other smaller systems owned by other people but um for me it it can't work without some way for the little guy to get involved and make their own things and to challenge these systems because you know if we're talking about iteration and we're talking about version control then we could very soon see ourselves converging on one version of the truth it has to be like this this is the system this is how the system works yeah. and um anybody who speaks against that is effectively um, a pariah. And that 
that could happen. It could be managed like that. And that is, uh, that's not what we want. So there needs to be, there does need to be this balance if we're going to get a system like that, that, you know, you're, I think some people would see you as introducing risk because you're letting, you're opening up uh, secure systems that don't exist, that the person hasn't made yet, but you are effectively providing a window into how the world is managed by making it a bit more of a marketplace, by making it um, something that people can get involved in. So people, they can throw out their ideas and make something happen with it. So where's the balance kind of between the democracy of, uh, of, of control and I guess the, the, the freedom of, of the marketplace? How does that balance well, out? Because there's a control and- Let me just say there's a lot of assumptions bound up in what you're saying that I, I'm yeah. not necessarily on board with. But okay, stipulate, cool. stipulating that, there's an obvious answer to me. And, and the obvious answer is in the name itself. It's a digital twin, right? You, you know, you can, it can also be a sandbox, right? It, you don't have to couple the twin so tightly with concrete reality, you know, with the physical world, which gives you a sandbox for people to intervene. If, if they think that, um, here's, here's an ideal example. Right now there's a controversy around traffic calming measures, you know, in, in my part of London. There, there have been fairly draconian top-down traffic common measures which have been taken, which I'm personally 1,000% in favor of, and which the, the public broadly constituted is also in favor of. And they enhance every single value that you could possibly imagine, except for vehicular throughput, right? And, and yeah. so there's a very, very vocal constituency primarily black cab drivers, but, you know, some Uber drivers as well. Um, and, and they're like, well, we can't have this. This is, this is an affront to our, our fundamental rights. Um, this is a perfect example where, you know, instead of having imposed this idea, you run the constraints in the sandbox, you see what sorts of behaviors crop up a year down the line, five years down the line, you know, you run, you run the experiment faster than real time. You know, you see what happens and then, and then people decide, is this a community I want to live in? Can I, can I put up with the idea that um, vehicular traffic is going to, you know, the, the average through speed of vehicular traffic in the borough is going to drop by such and such miles per hour, but we're going to have fewer fatalities as a result. And uh, the air pollution along these arterials is going to decline and, and you know, all, mm. all the values that a digital twin should capture. To me, that's the whole point of it is that, is that you have an environment where you can test propositions um, without having to, um, to, to live with the, either the, the time investment involved in letting those experiments run to completion in the real world or the top-down nature of an imposition. You, you test multiple versions of things and you see which one suits the public better it's that um modeling of people that's so troublesome isn't it i'm thinking specifically of the environmental benefits of speed bumps um yeah. so there you do end up depending on and this is the thing is so many variables and it's it's regionally different sure in some areas where you have speed bumps people take that to mean that you have to accelerate as hard as possible and then brake as hard as possible and go over the speed bump at the at, as fast as possible without really damaging your vehicle which releases particulates and it, it damages you know it does damage the vehicle 
um, and all that sort of stuff with the the pure kind of statistical model of they are traveling slower, therefore <laughs> they are producing less pollutants. There you go. There's your there's my beautiful maths for you. And then the, then here's the ugly, ugly human reality of trying to optimize situations. And I feel like, um, you know, this is like the economy. You know, we're still yeah. running the world like yeah. it's a mathematical model. Yep. Um, and maybe there is a model. You know, I would I do still have that logical positivist in me, but I know that the world is chaotic. And I think, uh, you know, in defense of it, I think we can keep searching for that. We can keep searching for a world where we understand what can be done and how we run things and how we can control things. But we need to really be mindful of the fact that we don't and that things are complex. And Well, you've made they, my argument for me. They interact. Yeah. <laughs> Let me throw out some Adam Greenfeld quotes that you can, you can edit. You know, we should design with concerns about power, privilege, and justice at their very heart. We should not seek some shallow optimism. Oh, bother. But a fruitful balance of contending for a single master algorithm could result in a Pareto efficient distribution of resources. Uh, the authorship of an algorithm intended to guide the distribution of civic resources is itself an inherently political act. Like these are. That guy's okay. Whoever said he's, that. He's, I am right. <laughs> he's got a good turn of phrase from time to time. Yeah, yeah. Good that turn of phrase. Uh, yeah, that guy's okay. Uh, you know, you're you're making Henry, you're making a point for me, uh, for me, which is which is that ultimately it's precisely the things like the particulate matter that you know come off the bottom of the taxi or you know are burned from the tires that uh, you know have the biggest impact on actual quality of life and aren't accounted for in the model, and and that's the trouble with models. And and if we under if we if we all of us were able to keep our emotional distance from the model, it would be one thing. Like if we remembered at the end of the day, it's just a model and allowed these things to inform our understanding of the world without thinking that they were the world. That would be one thing. But they have, you know, they're compelling artifacts. When you stand in front of a digital visualization of something, one that's been done with any craft and care at all, their their conversation enders. They're not conversation starters. I, I I take that back. I can think of I can think of plenty of counterexamples. But you know there is that there is that tendency that you know the, the the visualization itself is just so overwhelming. It seems to shut down debate, and it's because we've forgotten the thing is just a visualization. It's not the reality, and we've forgotten that there is sensitive dependence on additional on, on initial conditions, and that unless you're somehow measuring down to the Planck scale you know, you're really, your model will depart from reality at some point and possibly take you on quite the excursion. Um, you know, these are all things that we have to bear in mind whenever we stand in the presence of a sophisticated uh, representation of reality. And I think we forget these things. I forget them. And if I forget them, you know, with, with everything that I've taught myself to believe about their seductive power and, and their ability to mislead, how much more so is somebody who isn't armored in that way uh, likely to respond oh great well thank you very much adam for coming to the podcast and uh <laughs> joining in the debate with uh ian gordon and myself um henry femby taylor it's been really interesting to try to get to the bottom of some of these 
points and I feel like we keep skipping off the surface and we occasionally got a few deep dives in there but it's, there's our very lives our very species is at stake clearly clearly uh thanks for having me on I hope that it wasn't uh you know I hope that it wasn't too abstract and confusing I've been on a bender lately I've been on absolute tear um, of, of uh, obscure references to things that never do quite land back in the conversation. So I, I feel like I've, I've continued my tradition of doing so here tonight, and I hope that it isn't too confounding for you and the audience. Long may it continue. Ah, blessings upon you. Thanks so much for having me on. Good luck, Joe. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Oh, yeah. No, like, um, I can say thanks, too. <laughs> you can give, me your, <laughs> give me your closing thoughts, if you like. We're all going to keep making these models and we're all going to keep playing these games because it's what gives our life some sense of meaning, particularly in these dark times. But I, th I think it's it's remembering to have that sense of humility um, and understanding that you, you can't optimize the whole damn world, even if you want to. Um, voice that's under, that's, that's why I enjoy these books. They remind you that you are just a bit feckless and stupid and that's, that's important. Uh, it, only insofar as, as we include me in those categories, but thank, that's extremely kind of you to say, and, and you are, you know, every writer dreams of having a reader like that, you know, somebody who uh, takes what they have to offer on board without letting it be the gospel truth, and it's, it's actually, it's really rare to, you know, to find somebody sinking their teeth into the arguments you're making, so I'd like to thank you for that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. That was myself, Ian Gordon, and Adam Greenfield. Thanks for bearing with us. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Come check us out on LinkedIn. Come check us out on Twitter at the Digital Twin. See you soon.